Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. I am Michael Budd and today I am joined by the ever-present Ed Mann. How are you, Ed? Hello. Hello. You I okay? never know if that sounds good. Uh, the ever-present. It's like got nothing else to do or, you know, <laughs> always up for a pod is kind of his, his motto. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Thanks, man. You? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. So I guess it's been, uh, well, for me and you, it's been a couple of weeks since we did a podcast. I know you've uh, you've done one recently, um, but yeah, we have got lots of things to to discuss. So um, I've got a list of topics here, but is there anything you wanted to kick off with first before we go into those? Or uh, no, I think I think go for it, man. Let's let's go rock and roll it. with this list. Okay, so top of my list is the thing that I got burnt by this week, which was time zones, which was not fun. It seems really crazy. Like I, I don't think we're the only country in the world that does this, right? But there's not a huge amount that do it. The British summertime thing. I think you're right. Because didn't you do some research on it and you, you realise why we still do it and why it first came into play? Well, I did do the research and I completely forgot. But I think it was like mainly to do with like farming, right? And daylight hours and that kind of stuff. But I don't know. It feels like the, the world has moved on. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, there is a lot of support to get rid of it now, isn't there? I think it's it just, well, I don't know. Perhaps it shouldn't have caused chaos. But for me... I mean, it's not like my application fell over, but I mean, basically, some people were seeing the the time wrong in in my application. So, which I thought I was well covered for. I guess I should have used something like Carbon to try and um, check what would have happened like the week before. I remember you saying actually when we were speaking about this during the week, a lot of money is invested and problems occur in the computing industry because of these time zone changes. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, you know, and wasn't it it's the Great War that caused we started doing BST because of that, I think? I don't know, because when I, when I was reading, it was saying they stopped doing it during the war. I don't know. Oh. But I think it definitely had a role to play, but I could be completely wrong. Also, like, when I was, like, when I suddenly realised I had an issue, like, trying to research what to do, it wasn't like there was, like, anyone with a concise answer on what the best way to... It, it seemed like there was, like, definitely several ways to skin a cat. I guess the thing was, I think like you say, like the way that you store date times, as long as it's consistent, you can always do a repair on the front end, I guess, or, you know, when you're doing your queries. But it is a bit of a minefield, especially dealing with multiple time zones as well. Yeah, I, I think it's that whole being consistent, isn't it? For the audience, what actually then is your use case and what, what, what kind of caused you to have this problem? Um, so, I mean, basically the software that I produce is like an analytics type software. And obviously our users need to know what time the visits came into their sites. So yeah, we basically, we were showing the, the times an hour out. My solution basically in the end was, there was a lot of people saying, oh, never ever, you know, store time in uh, Europe, London. It should always be UTC. And in the end, I did change to Europe, London and that seems to have fixed the issue for me. But the thing I read was if you said to Europe, London, then the, the British summertime thing is all sorted for you. You don't need to do anything. If you don't do it that way, there are all kinds of um, clever ways of doing it. Like I think in the date time object that PHP has, it'll show you if you're in British summertime or not. And then you could work out the difference that way, all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm sure you can do this 
using UTC and I've got it horribly wrong, but I just couldn't find when I was panicking, like, ah, I need a fix. That was my solution, basically. I don't know. Like I say, I don't think I got the right answer, but I got an answer that worked. I think that is kind of the case for a lot of these things, isn't it? It works for you and it's working now. Um, but you mm. would probably like to know like a more definitive answer, I guess. And like it's having to, it's, it's having the time to spend, you know, to actually investigate it. And time zones are a scary thing and they are a weird thing. And I'd say, you know, it is the consistency. As long as you're consistent, you can then work out, you know, what the time is and things like that. Because you can then say, as long as I'm in this fixed point, I can then work out, you know, for because I know you're yeah. dealing with people in different time zones on a day to day basis as it is. So displaying your time zones, you know, you're storing them in one and then you're having to work out what their time zone is and stuff. So that adds an extra layer of complexity. Yeah, definitely. And I think I said to you, I mean, I could be talking rubbish here, but I think I was partially lucky in the fact that um, obviously we have our uh, our service with DigitalOcean and you can have service in London uh, through them now. So I had that. And I think maybe that was potentially hiding some issues from me because it was like in my date time zone. I think maybe if, if I'd had a server hosted in, I don't know, in the state somewhere, maybe it would have made me realize my potential downfalls earlier because I would have had to have dealt with that issue. I don't know. Because it's what the default operating system yeah. time zone is. So it probably takes from that. Definitely, I think Postgres does. Yeah. I'll put a couple of things in the show notes because I'm sure I've read some articles on this, kind of like the differences between storing the time zone in in Postgres and not storing it and the pros and cons of both on computer file um, and number file actually they're really interesting youtube channels and one of the things that they discussed on there a while back was like the problem with time and time zones and going into these crazy like different things you know that you wouldn't never think like we, we complain about an hour time zone change but didn't you say that, that the initial proposal was to be 80 minutes or something and it was going to go down in 20 minute chunks every week or some crazy thing so i think we've we lucked out of that that would have been extra complexity <laughs> horrendous yeah when they were first proposing the british summertime change yeah they was talking about sort of like incremental like every week would be like an extra 20 minutes long or something it was i don't know absolutely mind-boggling but yeah uh, but yeah i would definitely welcome some good articles on on the best uh, practices with um time zones and it's just what works for you as much as anything isn't it mm. i think and yeah. for your use case I think there is still, but actually, I think there are still these crazy, wacky time zones, like in certain parts of the world. So I think yeah. this this video definitely goes into it. It's been a while since I last watched it, but maybe I'm going to have to definitely watch it again to uh, kind of refresh my mind on it all. Yeah. Um, because it always, obviously, it rears its ugly head twice a year uh, yes. when this actually happens. Uh, and then once that happens, you forget, you set, forget, and you go back on with your day. But time zones and Unicode seem to be like kind of one of the two of these things that you have to as a computer you know as a programmer you you're going to get bit by eventually yeah. uh, it's just and you know one of those things and actually it's a really interesting one actually that um uh, so unix you know the unix timestamp the epoch yeah uh, and it's the duration of seconds part of, since 1970 i think it is yeah that they've got this concept of like the end of time because a 32 bit integer which is what typically they store the timestamp in or these, these seconds past this fixed point actually you know obviously will overflow eventually after like two billion or something and there's a time in 2031 where essentially we will redo the the 20th century uh because we'll go back <laughs> to 19 something so because of the fact i mean obviously what people have done now and operating systems have done now is they're catering for the fact of dealing with it in 64 bits so we won't get this problem but i'm sure undoubtedly there will be old hardware and, and this is the thing like because 
systems that it's not just operating systems like software computer-based systems now it's hardware it's software on a chip it's the concept of systems on chips and stuff and it will be like your freezer will just pack up because it will (laughs) you know think it's 1901 again or something can really you know it's 2031 so it will be an interesting time we've got a while to, to wait we shall see yeah well i know like my uh my client at the moment he the legacy application they he literally has to log on and change the time on the windows server to uh to get around the issue at the moment of the bridge summertime so um yeah that's a bit horrendous so hopefully the uh the fix i've put in will um make it a lot easier on the new application so second thing the results of the twitter poll oh yes so i won right I yeah mean, you won at losing yeah, uh, yeah. you know uh, you uh, to be fair out of the uh, how many was it? it was seven to three or something so out of the se- 10 votes cast i think you know it was a very it was a heated vote battle. i mean uh, it's been a lot more vocal a lot more successful than our what is better greece one or greece two twitter poll i mean that was the one wasn't it i was trying to remember yeah. oh dear. yeah I think we, we, we obviously hit a nerve here, you know, PHP Storm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it turns out more people think PHP Storm, you should give it another chance. But you're, you're also more vocal in the fact that, you know, saying that they prefer simpler tools. And, and I can't complain. I can't argue with that, really. Mm. Um, you know, that using the right tool for the job. And if you want to keep it simple, keep it simple. It's, it's what works for you as, as much as anything, because, you know, it's your kind of day-to-day environment. And as long as you're able to produce the code and, and, you had the tools around you that you like then that's it i mean i personally love the refactoring tools and i love like the the tests you know kind of infrastructure around it dealing with php unit and how it works with that and how it can deal with uh, you know version control inside of it as well which is nice in php storm and and actually there was a new version released this week which i nudged you about because i know how much you love php storm and they've added even more things they're very much dev happy people you know they want to keep us happy and they know what we want and obviously they're developers at heart too so a lot of the things they do is pain points for them and then obviously it goes into the actual code base so and it's definitely shown by the tools that they do provide what would happen just theoretically right say um php storm say you suddenly need to get a new license and they put the price up to ten thousand pounds to use it for a month how easy would it be for you to move away from it very easy i mean really yeah the code because the code it is still just files it's just text files there's nothing application specific yeah the niceties you know i mean we you could easily move to a text-based editor if you wanted just a simple plain text editor if you wanted there's no you know i think that's the, the day I think you know when you look at Visual Studio maybe um, and you look at like the WinForm stuff back in the day or if there's anything proprietary that you know you you're creating that requires you to have that IDE um, in PHP world you know you, it's not they're all just niceties uh, so you would miss like the refactoring tools but then as you said I mean but this is the, my argument though is that so you say you use something like Sublime or you use Vim but then what you happens typically is you'll then add all these plugins on and you'll add all these plugins such as like the refactoring tools or making test um, suites run easier and you'll just get to a point where it's like well you're actually just making it into an IDE then mm. so my my argument there is you know then just use an IDE but I can understand if someone does just want the simple keep it simple kiss kind of philosophy and yeah so either way and it's whatever again it's whatever works for you well see the people on my side are angry mob ready to take up arms but um, <laughs> i think like a lot of people were i think our main criticism is that it is a bit of bloat a bit it doesn't run that great 
but the people who've obviously voted for it don't experience that at all. So I don't know if that's just because you're all running on like really super high spec machines. I don't think. See, this is. I, I think you need to give it another shot on your machine. It is Java, but I don't think there's a problem with it unless you're running on like a netbook or a netup box kind of thing. I think you'll be I okay. Am. And I, you are. That, yeah. That's the issue. Yeah. Because uh, I never really have any problems. Sometimes you'll get the. Uh, you know, it will. It will start like leaking memory a bit, or it will start using CPU like crazy, and you'll find that it's probably because it's trying to index like a lot of files and stuff like that. And the niceties it has like around Symfony stuff, like because there are plugins, extra plugins you can do even in the IDE world and around Symfony and, and how it's able to quick, you know, work out template files and service file, like service definitions and things. It it just saves a lot of time. And, that, and that's one of the things like, you know, the, the saving in time, I value quite a lot now with it. Mm. Okay. So uh, the next thing, uh, obviously been in the news this week uh, with the terrorist attack in London, which is... Uh, pretty horrible one of the things that came out of that was i think amanda rudd from the government basically i think she invited someone from whatsapp to go and basically speak to her because what it came out was that the terrorists had been talking about his plans on whatsapp prior to the event and she was saying obviously if if we had had access to that we could have prevented it now for me like i know i sort of studied this a bit at school and you've got the i believe like the two different systems called uh, freedom from and freedom to so like freedom to means you know obviously you, you've got the freedom to go and commit a terrorist attack if you want to freedom from is we'll, we'll stop those terrorist attacks happening but we'll take away a lot of your you know privacy and stuff to to accomplish that and it's a very interesting debate and probably split a lot of listeners on this show it's very tricky but my personal feeling is that those whatsapp conversation encryption that kind of stuff it should stay encrypted and you know, they don't really have the right to access those conversations. But how do you feel? I'm on the same side as you. I think, you know, the way that it was kind of portrayed is that, you know, it's like, well, we need a backdoor in, okay? And it's like, okay, you know, so so we can stop, you know, these really, really terrible, bad things happening. And granted, no one wants these really terrible, terrible, bad things to happen. But if you have a backdoor in, you're not only going to use it for those really terrible, terrible, bad things, but other bad people then who have this backdoor into this system will use it for other things, nefarious other reasons because yeah. of the fact that they've unlocked it. So what it shows to you, though, and the way that you kind of word it and, you know, it's all in the media is this military hardware grade encryption, like the way that they slogan it and, you know, they kind of tag it as and it's just, well, this is just peer to peer encryption. This is end to end encryption that is used and it shows that in theory, they still can't break this. Like, this is still unbreakable. You know, whether there are obviously... Because I think there's a lot of papers that came out because uh, of WikiLeaks or something a while back, you know, about how they hacked TVs and stuff, pretended that they were on still or something, some Samsung devices. So, you know, obviously they, they know and they, they are going to be hacking these things. And But it shows maybe that they still can't hack this and that it is unbreakable and that the, the kind of publicity that WhatsApp use against, you know, the, the fact that they are using this into encryption and that it is unbreakable is true. I know there was sorry. I know there was a a while back actually. I think probably a month or two back, a guy who had said that he could. There, there was there there was a loophole in the way that they pair the devices. I think that a text or or you know text that were batched up essentially could be sent out unencrypted because the idea is that you have a, a secret key. You know, you, you, you know each other's public keys and you have your own signing ones. General, like if you want to be really secure, what you would do is you'd go to that person's device and you'd, you know, you'd meet up in person. You'd then QR code it or whatever. You would make sure that you've got the exact key that they need. They have their, their public key. And then what would happen then is that I know 
that I verified it's that person. Over typical kind of conversations that we have, these keys just get sent over the wire themselves. So in theory, they could just be pretend, like they could just be forged in that case. So you'd have to go into person and make a verify that you've got the exact key that that person has. Um, and there was this thing that if you got your phone and it was out of signal or something, or you put your SIM card into a new phone and then you'd done it that way and it would actually send them unencrypted like using a new key that could have been in theory hijacked as opposed to waiting for you to say hang on a minute i'm doing it a bit disservice i'll put that in the show notes as well actually um and it's really interesting but it is there is like a loophole that could have been i don't know whether whatsapp have actually patched that yet so yeah it's a very hard topic there bud very hard it is really difficult and uh, i can imagine if we you know we had someone on the show who'd lost someone in that attack it would be very difficult to argue to them that we should keep it but uh, at the same time, oh, I mean, one of the things that really annoys me is the same thing you just picked up on is, you know, when, uh, you know, they were saying, oh, WhatsApp, you know, how how dare they? They're using military grade encryption, military grade encryption. It's the same encryption that everyone uses. And, and the reason, I mean, I'm going back to my uh, uni studies here, but I'm pretty sure it was like the NSA who, who basically that, you know, they invited the private sector to come up with their encryption algorithms and they selected a winner it was like a competition that's what they do that's what they still do i think yeah. it's the the idea and and eventually encryption gets broken like they had this with the shattered or the shah yeah. kind of thing wasn't it they had a collision and the first ever collision for shah one hash or something and it was amazing it was a big you know kind of whoa you know we're able to kind of make a contrived file that actually represents that has the same hash as something else um, and that was kind of a scary thing. But obviously things like GitHub and stuff, I'll put these in the show notes as well, is that they've gone around and they're able to work out if a file, you know, kind of has these kind of traits that looks like it's going to try and be one of these files that, you know, tries to do the SHA collisions. Yeah, encryption gets broken eventually and it will be on to the next. And the best thing you can do is it's kind of, you know, it's a game. I mean, it, it's always been a game. The whole thing in back in Alan Turing, you know, back in World War Two with um, the Enigma machine, the, it was the game of breaking the code. It's the idea that, you know, there's this problem that we're trying to solve. Having this competition of being like, okay, you know, who's got the best encryption and things like that does, it promotes this kind of work to get to the best. Yeah. You want the bad people to be found, but the good people to be private, but it's all or nothing. You either have everything private or everything public. There's no in between. And that's where the shade of gray comes where it doesn't really work at all. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very difficult topic i know that's probably the most like kind of politically driven conversation we've had on the show it is, it is. so uh next on my list i asked you whether i could bring it up on the show you said no don't i don't know anything about it and i'm going to mention it anyway uh we did say we would probably just ask if anyone uh, wants to come on the show and talk about it maybe the differences between webpack version one and, and version two because i accidentally upgrade updated my webpack from version one to version two and then found things weren't working and then in really panicking sort of way, I basically then just NPM update, updated everything and, and managed to just muddle my way into a system where things were working again. But it was really, really hacky. Um, yeah, it would be good if we could get someone to come on and talk about it, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And I think uh, I'll, I'll, we'll try and we'll ask some people. I think, you know, getting Yuho on again would be awesome yeah. um, when he spoke about it initially, version one. And I know he's got more committed into the Webpack 2 stuff. I know he's working on that a lot. So, yeah, definitely. It'd be really interesting. Yeah, sounds good. And Let's Encrypt is on my list. And I can't remember why we're going to talk about it. You've done some interesting stuff. Yeah, well, actually, that's, that's actually, I mean, obviously, following on from the discussion we've had, anyone now can really have you know, HTTPS encryption and TLS, sorry, encryption for your site. And, uh, you know, you, you really should. I mean, it's it's silly not to now. And, and one of the things actually 
like CertBot is a very good tool. And in very simple cases, that's the tool, sorry, that it lets encrypt, you allow it to provide you, which makes it very easy in very kind of like the normal cases, the norm, you know, if you have an Apache instance or an Nginx instance and you just want it to be verified, because what, what happens is you have to verify with Let's Encrypt in an automated fashion it does. Um, so it doesn't give you the verified, the top level yeah. um, certificate, but it does let you know that you have access to that DNS, to that actual record, for to that actual domain. So, you know, what you're they're giving verifying for is legit. So for that kind of typical use case, it's very simple to use something like CertBot with the kind of configurations it provides. But one thing we found and what we do is so we have a, a high level, I can't remember exactly what it is. I think it's the verified um, HTTPS certificate for live, but in dev mode, uh, we use Let's Encrypt because we want to still be using HTTPS because we want to make sure it's as lifelike, as real as the production environment, but we don't want to have the costs and the costs are quite expensive of all these certificates and stuff. So what we've done is we ended up, um, it was actually cheaper for us to split out our domain. So we used to be on one subdomain or one domain and we'd have subdomains off that. And Let's Encrypt has a 20 max limit on the subdomains on one single domain. So we ended up, it was cheaper for us to each have our own domain. And then from that, each of those domains, we then, obviously they point to the same server and, you know, it's just within our host, virtual host file. But in that, then we have encryption and certificates for each individual one of those. And it was the automation process around that. Uh, and, and it proved to be very interesting, very simple, actually, with CertBot to be able to do this. And you can do some very like cool manual things, you know, in an automated fashion to a point and let them deal with a lot of the stuff, but then get these certificates back and use them how you wish. So that's what I was really going to say. Like, you know, definitely the ma- check out the CertBot documentation if you are looking into Let's Encrypt stuff uh, and see what kind of things you can do outside of the norm. Nice. The only other thing I had on my list, and obviously you, we cruelly took away the, the hot picks section of the podcast, which, I mean, I think should come back, but... Well, I think we can. Hey, bud, we're full reign of the show. Let's do it. It's coming back for at least today. probably one pick yeah. today. Okay. It's hot picks. What is your hot pick Hi. today, bud? Welcome to hot picks. My hot pick today <laughs> is the Facebook data table for React. Okay, okay. Yep. Have you used it? Um, not yet, but oh, no, no. no, I have. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, no, I have used it this time, and uh, I sort of really struggled to find one that I I like. To be honest with you, um, I used uh, Griddle. I used that for a little while, and it, it was okay. And I think they uh, they updated it, and I didn't find it worked as well. It almost felt like they rushed a release. Um, I found lots of things didn't work. Probably my fault actually, but uh, but anyway, I moved away and uh, I decided to go for the Facebook one because. To be honest with you, I just felt like it had more chance of the uh, the code being supported going down the line. So I use that. Basically, what it gives you is sort of like the, the styling, and it's got um, uh, I guess kind of like lazy loading type thing. It's not it's not paginated particularly. You scroll down and you, you'll keep loading the the table rows as you go down. So it's quite nice. But in terms of the sourcing, you have to implement all that yourself, which actually isn't necessarily a bad thing because you know it gives you the control whether you're doing it client side server side all that kind of stuff so yeah it's okay i mean it's not the kind of thing you can just drop in there is some customization you have to do but i think if you if you're looking for a data table i would probably say that's the best one from what i've seen anyway yeah join us next week we actually don't we, there probably won't be another hot picks but who knows yeah there'll be a hot pick if there is a hot pick exactly you know, we don't want to 
bash the hot picks into it if there is no hot pick. Well, that's it. It just becomes a pick, a pick that exactly. isn't hot. Exactly, you know. Cool picks. Yeah. Um, but actually, you brought up React there, which is interesting. And one thing that I don't know if we've touched upon on the show, I know we've spoken about it off air, was the interesting thing you had with performance and actually realizing that immutable stuff can be very slow. Yeah. Uh, and I think you were using, what is it, JSON encode or, or stringify to kind of get around the copying these quite yeah. deeply nested structures. Yes. And you were trying to get, like, obviously with React, immutable stuff's great because it can be very quick for being able to say, oh, has this changed? Okay, render the new one. Um, and there's like, obviously these very nice data structures that like immutable JS implement and that you're able to switch over to that and you found great performance in doing that as opposed to, because I think your way, obviously, I mean, it did come up on Stack Overflow and stuff. So people probably do still use it. And it probably is a good thing to discuss kind of pros and cons of it. I'm still not using Immutable JS. It's my probably my biggest regret from the project that I didn't use it, but I didn't know much about it at the time. And in fact, when I first started this project, my JavaScript knowledge was minimal, really. And um, yeah, it was a huge regret. Like you say, I was... I was using something I found on Stack Overflow, which was like, oh, yeah, just uh, JSON, pass, JSON, stringify. So then you were essentially getting back a new object. Yeah, it was a deep clone. I, I didn't know at the time, but obviously it is really uh, performance heavy. So then basically I swapped it out for like a shallow clone. And then I got burnt by that because it was using some things from... Um, I don't know, uh, some things that some browsers weren't supporting. But now I've got, yeah, I've got something that is working, basically shallow cloning objects. But yeah, I, I wish I'd used Immutable.js. That, that would have been the way forward. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And the thing is, realizing that these things aren't cheap, you know, I mean, immutable stuff in the naive fashion. I mean, you do want to, you, you essentially want to try and do like a deep clone because you want to be like, I want a brand new everything. Yeah. Um, but obviously you don't sometimes because of the fact of performance, you only want the shallow clones. Uh, and then immutable JS is great because it really provides you, it takes away all that pain. Uh, and you never have to worry about it and it does it in the most performant way possible it's very hard now obviously well i suppose it wouldn't be too hard i mean you could slowly refactor and i suppose that's what you're probably thinking of doing is refactoring your code base uh, to incorporate it in the key areas and then you can kind of hopefully infiltrate the whole code base with that and remove the shallow stuff yeah and on top of that i actually found um obviously uh in your should component update method react I found like a lot of tutorials I was following it was saying, well, when you're comparing two objects, also you want to check that the uh, the contents is the same. In most circumstances, you want to see if, if the, the contents of the objects has changed. So I was then doing, you know, if JSON stringify this object equals, equals, equals this next state object, JSON stringify, and that was also costly. So, you know, I'm having to strip a lot of that out now as well. Again, I'm not a JavaScript expert at all, as this is probably uh, showing but there are a lot of pitfalls and a lot of performance issues to to be aware of, I think, when you're uh, doing this kind of stuff. Again, it's a whole new domain yeah. to understand and, and kind of comprehend. Testing it in isolation, in, in development modes, is very different to testing it in real-life data and realizing in production and then realizing on mobile devices yeah. and realizing all these different processes that you don't have access to because you're just using your dev, you know, you, you don't really consider it because you're just using your dev box that may be super powerful or in your case, you know, 1990s hardware because yeah. it won't run PHP Storm correctly. My Amstrad. Uh, you know, is <laughs> your Amstrad, absolutely, is going to be the problem. And actually speaking of performance and stuff, this leads on quite well to a topic. So when this comes out, I, I would have, uh, probably, we probably would have released the episode I did with Brian Moses. I'm hoping to kind of upgrade my server setup and Brian Moses does some really great NAS setups and kind of discussion on that. And he spoke really intellectually, intelligently about all these really cool topics like RAID, 
you know, choosing your CPUs, choosing motherboards, what's all these, you know, kind of things you need to consider with servers and stuff last episode. And I kind of continued that on and discussing kind of Intel Core i series versus Xeons and stuff. And, and there's a really interesting YouTube channel, which I'll put into show notes about. And he goes into kind of this discussion as well and talks more about it in kind of layman terms, which is really what I need. Like I haven't built PCs or anything for, for years. So I really wanted to kind of go back down to the route of, okay, well, you know, back in the day, it was AMD versus Intel. What's it now? and why is people raving on about Xeons versus i-series and stuff and is my use case you know more of a Xeon process based or is it i-series based and this YouTube video gives a good rundown of that kind of again like the beauty of building a PC is it's completely up to your use case there's you know infinite you know there's no definitive answer it's really what you want out of it so who are the key players now then because like you say I, I was going to think of Intel and AMD but it's Intel it's Intel uh, AMD have released us are, are starting to kind of come back a little bit I think they're releasing some new chips but it is mainly Intel you know that you're going to be looking at for these server based rigs and stuff I mean obviously you've got things like the ARM processors and stuff but they're yeah. much more low end yeah it's Intel man that's it for now and are they still like, because I mean, when I was like learning about this, they were saying processors, they they really kind of got to the point where, you know, they really can't make much better uh, CPUs now that, and that, you know, hence the parallel hardware. Are they still getting much better or is it, has it slowed right down? Yeah. So yeah, Moore's Law has definitely happened. And what, what seems to happen now is it's four gigahertz uh, per core that you're going to get really i think that's like the max so you can overclock it to a little bit more maybe i think like in certain use cases but that's really going to be your, your tippity top so what you do now is you, you know as you say you don't expand vertically you expand it horizontally so you're going to have more cores on the chip um you know they, they're round about i think it's like eight cores on a chip maybe you can get in a xeon and typically what you'll see you do is you'll have like dual processor dual uh, socket motherboard so you can actually have two processors or even more on the motherboard itself so in that case you'll get like 16 cores uh, so it is all about cores but it is interesting though because certain use cases require be- better better clock speeds so in the case of like gaming it's single threaded so it needs higher clock speeds so you're better off not having like a you know a massively you know paralleled cord processing power you're better off having a couple of cores that are very quick as opposed to maybe like file sharing and stuff which require kind of independent you know people using the system that that will need more cores but maybe they can be a bit lower powered so it's working out what your use cases are and and the things that they are improving on is obviously you know putting more cores on a chip things such as like the speeds like caches and stuff increasing cache sizes and things which is obviously big things but you know the main thing which was obviously clock speed has kind of died down a lot because that's all they can do that's what physically the hardware can actually get to i guess the other thing is i mean like the way it was always portrayed to me was that for many 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 years it was the software guys were chasing the hardware guys saying oh come on get us faster processors get us, get us more and now it's turned around and the hardware guys are like guys are you actually going to use the extra cores that we're giving you and, uh... Well, well, this is it. I mean, the thing is, is it's changed. The landscape's changed. Of well, we can't give you faster cores, single, you know, single cores. Mm. What we can do instead is we can say, I can give you more of these cores. So you're going to have to deal and paralyze this in, in whatever way possible. And that's where, you know, functional programming comes in with immutability and things and, and kind of the concept of Erlang and all these different languages and, and different models like the Atom, you know, all these things that separate it out as opposed to what we were specifically doing with immutable OO kind of code that we had, uh, like enterprise OOE code which is very much you know unless you use things like threading stuff you know you're dealing with it in just a single threaded way and you just want it to be as quick as possible but we can't get that anymore 
but that that's fine you know i mean we're, we're kind of again expanding out in a different way and it's on us to to use the the hardware that we actually have and and i think that's actually one thing i've realized from all this kind of more foraying into it again is that you know i'm a software guy but you have to appreciate and it's again it's appreciating the levels below you um you know appreciating what you're built on and, and from even the root level of okay well what does a cp have cpu have what caching does it have how does it work what's you know what are all these things and and taking don't take it for granted you know that the power and the the work that goes into all these bits that build up to the abstractions that we use which is just software languages yeah that is pretty crazy it'd be interesting to know, like the commercial operating systems like mac os and windows how much there they've adapted their software to work with these multiple cores you'd like to think they were on top of it one of the interesting use cases that we spoke about was uh, transcoding. So in Plex and, and these things is, so there's this whole thing actually. So with like video and decoding and things is you have hardware decoding. So eventually uh, you can get like hardware de- video decoding or like, you know, audio decoding, which is actually on a chip. And that's like obviously the best and, and the most performant because then it's de- that hardware just deals with it. So things such as X264, um, which is the, the the formats being that is used kind of is very much like the winner now. Uh, it went from the DivXs and the XVIDs to now this, and it that's the I think it's called the AVC, which is the Audio Video Codec or Advanced Video Codec, sorry. And that is now pretty much in all hardware. So you know your TV will probably have a hardware chip that can decode that. So with Plex, it can stream through the whole that whole just you know raw original file stream and say, here you go, TV, you can now decode this. But with the newer ones, such as high efficiency VC um, video codec, and that's the X265, um, that's very, it's a lot newer. Uh, it's a lot better. Like you actually find that your the, the actual quality for the size of the file will be better. So you actually get a lower file size. It's one of those great things where a lower file size, but better quality. And it's like, what? This is insane. Uh, and, you know, they've done a better job, but it's not on hardware yet. So all this transcoding coding has to happen in software. And that puts a lot of emphasis then on your CPUs because that's primarily single-threaded, all this kind of transcoding, unless they can kind of somehow. I don't know whether like FFmpeg and things can do more parallelization and stuff, but if it can, that'd be great. But I think particularly it's more single-threaded. So you're putting a lot more burden on your CPU and the software side of things as opposed to the fact of putting it into hardware. All I took from that was don't use PHP Storm. But uh, yeah, it's only good. Uh. <laughs> that, is, that is the only thing i think out of all the show yeah. and actually there was one final thing or two final things actually i would love to uh quickly mention so one thing i would say is the concept of like you know we, we use the date time objects uh it, you know cons- abstraction in php and we use and hopefully you use like the date time immutable one as well and you realize the merits of using the immutable one over the normal date time one but one of the things is actually newing these up and some really nice in the php fashion you know everything's a function and and there are aliases actually uh, like date underscore create that will just do the new instance for you. And it provides a bit, a bit more of a fluid interface. I find sometimes to say, if you want to just format something, you do a date create on it and you format it or, you know, you're able to pipe it as opposed to like having this weird new, you know, wrapping those in, you know, brackets and doing that. And it's just a nicer way. So I would say, to, you know, to spend some time having a look at these aliases as in true PHP fashion, you know, everything's a function, you know, and under the hood, obviously it's using the same instance kind of things and, you know, making, a new instance of date time and stuff but there are some nice ones like date you know create date create from format and things like that so i would definitely mention you know check them out um, and finally and actually i'm um, this is in uh, true budster fashion actually i haven't actually <laughs> looked at this properly yet but it's something that came up today um on my list and it's uh, a make a lisp so i've really interested in kind of how lisps are generated and stuff and how they're created 
Um, and, and they seem to be kind of conceptually quite easy to understand. Building one would be really awesome. And actually, there is a very cool project. And actually, there's a couple of uh, videos and stuff that I still need to check out. And I'm going to check them out this, uh, this evening. There is about making a lisp. And what someone's done is they've actually been able to compile together making this certain lisp in loads of different languages. So there's a language that you'll know or not, you know, and you want to learn a language, learn how to make a lisp in it and stuff. And actually, that was one thing that Scott Voloshin said when we had him on was talking about understanding a problem already and then writing it in a new language with new ideas or new concepts and stuff. And I want to get into that concept of understanding how you'd make a lisp. Uh, one of the things he did mention was making a lisp, and I'd love to do that and then actually look into this. So that be something really cool to look into yeah sounds good did you have anything else or should we wrap it up i think we can wrap this up man i think we've touched upon political stuff we touched upon code we touched upon hardware i don't know what else we could mention uh other than php storm rock and roll so you know it's it's for the win next week we'll be discussing the meaning of life and uh i think that's it right that is it man all right well thanks for listening and uh we'll be back soon goodbye You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.